the day journalism died and a new world was born. Quote, The man who reads nothing at all is better educated than the man who reads nothing but newspapers. Thomas Jefferson November 8, 2016. That was the day journalism as we once knew it died. Gone was objectivity. Gone was a search for the truth, no matter where it led. Gone was holding the powerful to account. Gone was the desire to serve the public's best interest. It's been seven years now, and most of us are still in mourning. We can't forget what journalism used to be. We sit glumly in front of yet another viewing of all the president's men, broadcast news, or the insider, where reporters still cared about the truth. All we can do is take another drink and cry. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, he turned to his top guy, and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him, fuck you. <laughs> well, everybody said, you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Where did it all go, and why was it so easy? Because fear does strange things to people, and algorithms do strange things to those whose survival depends on clicks, engagements, and views. I often spend my time in the era prior to 2016 to relive the good old days of objectivity and journalism. I particularly love the New York Times archive because I know they can't go back and change it now. Whatever they thought once upon a time, whether praising Hitler and eugenics or complaining about politics at the Oscars, their history tells us who they really were, not who they wanted to be. They think they're all on the right side of history now, but they aren't. Whatever horrors they're avoiding talking about, from gender-affirming care to their endless praise of Joe Biden, will all come out in the wash. The unprecedented alignment of power that stretches across all media outlets, most major institutions, Hollywood, science, hospitals, and the security state, are united in their commitment to controlling the message, regardless of that neutral objectivity we once relied on, and they once claimed to value above all. A great example of how they spin the narrative is the case of Ray Epps, Anyone following the Stop the Steal movement knows that they were planning on protesting peacefully outside the Capitol, not going in, not breaching, and certainly nothing violent. Even Alex Jones was out there saying, no violence. They also know what happened in the aftermath, and how everyone was treated 
just for exercising their First Amendment right to peacefully assemble. Because of the riot, which proved all too convenient, the Democrats, working with the never-Trumpers in the security state, were now given absolute power to go to war on Trump and ordinary citizens. Epps was repeatedly caught on video urging Trump supporters to go into the Capitol. He painted himself as a Trump supporter, yet appeared to immediately flee D.C. and pop up like an eager beaver at the FBI to either give them information in exchange for a lighter sentence or perhaps was working with a fringe agency that wasn't the FBI in the first place. What never made sense to Trump supporters is that no Trump supporter is passionate enough to repeatedly urge so many people to go into the Capitol, then brag about it in a text message that he orchestrated it, to then run to the FBI that quickly. It seemed odd. Anyone invested enough to show up that day was a true blue and would never have flipped like that. The New York Times ran two puff pieces about Epps where he threatened to sue. He didn't actually take steps towards that lawsuit until he was represented by Michael Teeter, who spent his time hunting down any lawyers who supported Trump's cases regarding the 2020 election. The threat existed before Fox fired Carlson and now is charging forward. Why? Because they know Fox will settle, and that is a win for them in their desire to control how all Americans view January 6th. Ultimately, they want to ruin Fox News and cut off that resource for MAGA supporters. And if Epps walks away with a sizable chunk of cash at Fox's expense, all the better for the resistance. This is much bigger than Ray Epps and Fox News and Tucker Carlson. This is even bigger than winning the war on information and their version of what happened that day. This is about shutting down a grassroots movement on the right that they still can't control heading into 2024. They can't fix Biden, that's for sure. But they can continue to weaken Trump and MAGA. This case is one step closer to that ultimate goal. The defamation case might as well have been written by any journalist at MSNBC, full of its own fanciful imaginings. Context they provide, which may or may not be the truth, they're charging that the anchors willfully lied about Epps to distract from the Dominion lawsuit, quote, and with that, Fox, and particularly Mr. Carlson, commenced a years-long campaign spreading falsehoods about Epps. Those lies have destroyed Ray's and Robin's lives. As Fox recently learned in its litigation against Dominion voting systems, its lies have consequences, end quote. But here's the problem. They can't prove Tucker Carlson lied with ill intent to defame Epps. They can't prove that he didn't believe what he was saying, which is what a defamation case must do. If Epps was an informant, he would not be obligated to disclose that fact, especially if he wasn't working specifically with the FBI, or if he wasn't hired to agitate a crowd into violence and was, for example, embedded and paid as an informant. The defamation case denies all of this and claims Epps just had a change of heart after all of the publicity in the wake of January 6th. If Epps was telling them repeatedly to go into the Capitol, why would he have not wanted them to go in when they finally did? He said on 60 Minutes that he abruptly changed his mind when they did as he told them to do and saw that it became violence. Why then did he text he orchestrated it? Was he happy they breached the Capitol or not? He changed his story and they bought it, no questions asked. Why? Moreover, given the treatment of every other protester except Epps, 
Why wouldn't Carlson and others assume he had to be working for some government agency? That seems reasonable. That alone is not defamation, as this case concluded back in 2010. Quote, being called an informant is not defamation. On November 25, 2009, a court of appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed the dismissal of a suit filed by a prisoner who claimed that he was defamed when two newspapers reported that he intended to cooperate with authorities. Shenton Michavi sued the New York Daily News and the Polish Daily News for defamation after both reported that he intended to inform on a co-defendant of his. The district court dismissed Machavi's suit, and the Second Circuit affirmed. Under New York law, the Second Circuit held, it is not defamatory to call someone an informant because a snitch is not reprehensible in the minds of right-thinking persons. If their case is that the bad guys are the seditious conspirators, then being called an informant is actually not the definition of defamation, in fact. It's the opposite. If someone is saying Epps is not a criminal but is working with the government, that paints him in a better light. Conversely, if they are alleging that calling him someone other than an informant, but in fact a protester and Trump supporter on January 6th, urging people to go into the Capitol, then what Epps was actually doing there was valid and legit. If they then prosecute him for being an insurrectionist, that might prove he was never an informant, but it hardly proves defamation of character. Moreover, what Epps has suffered pales in comparison to what the January 6th prisoners and protesters suffered at the hands of the government and the media. They just don't have a fancy lawyer like Michael Teeter to sue for defamation. The President of the United States called Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist. The entire January 6th show trial and images of the riot on repeat, painting Trump supporters as vicious, violent terrorists, ruined not just their lives, but anyone who wears a MAGA hat today. The left went along with all of it, and they still do. You don't think Tucker Carlson gets death threats? People confront him in real life. They follow him around and threaten him personally. They beat up Trump supporters because the media called them racist. How is that not defamation? Look at these headlines. Human Rights Watch, Racism's Prominent Role in January 6th U.S. Capitol Attack. NPR, the unspoken role of race in the January 6th riot. The Washington Post, far-right symbols seen at the U.S. Capitol riot. Salon, January 6th as white supremacy. AP News, years of white supremacy threats culminated in Capitol riots. They were convicted in the court of public opinion long before they ever showed up in D.C. with MAGA flags, whether they breached the Capitol or not. There was no due process for them. No one even bothered to ask if they were motivated by race. Why? Because they were using spectral evidence, that which you cannot see. That is not good enough when their entire lives and futures are on the line. Call them whatever you want, but smearing them as white supremacists fits the definition of defamation far more than calling someone a paid informant ever could. Did they or did they not paint Jacob Chansley and others who breached the Capitol as white supremacists? That allows everyone on the left, in government, and in major institutions like banks to dehumanize Trump supporters and feel justified in doing so. That is defamation of character. Why don't they sue Lawrence O'Donnell and MSNBC? Here is a video of Lawrence O'Donnell's show. Anand, what are the signs that the future will prevail? Well, the trajectory, this is Martin Luther King's birthday. And 
he spoke of that arc bending. And the arc is bending, has been bending, has continued to bend. And it's very easy to lose sight of that fundamental through line and that fundamental narrative in American life, given what has happened, right? I mean, we have last week was insurrection week. This week was impeachment week. Next week's inauguration week. We never got infrastructure week. And it's dark. It's very, very dark. But I think if you look at so much of this darkness, it is not the darkness of the beginning of something. This is not a launch party that you're seeing on the other side of the screen. This is a funeral for something. It is a funeral for white supremacy. It is a funeral for a kind of outdated, outmoded male power. It is a, a mourning um, for a time in which certain Americans could feel and claim to be the default of an American and not have to share. And what we have witnessed in this era, alongside the depredations of Donald Trump, is another story too, a, a longer story. This was also this past year that just ended, the year of extraordinary protests on the street for Black Lives Matter that also corresponded with extraordinary shifts in mainstream white opinion about racism. This was also the year gone by in which white people here is the President of the United States drawing a clean line between what Trump supposedly said in Charlottesville on January 6th. He says it's rooted in white supremacy. Continues to be the torches emerging from dark shadows in Charlottesville, carrying out Nazi banners and chanting anti-Semitic bile and Ku Klux Klan flags and the violent, deadly insurrection on the Capitol nine months ago, it was about white supremacy, in my view. The rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans during the pandemic. They took Trump's comments out of context, as they routinely did, and then they carried it all the way to January 6th to paint a picture of who they are and what they wanted when they protested the 2020 election, which was their right as American citizens. Is no one going to sue all of them for these blatant lies, which really do meet the definition of defamation? PBS paints them as frothy, angry brown shirts in this supposed story on the supposed insurrection. I think about a revolution against the government. We're past the point of peace. From Charlottesville, the assault on the Capitol. One of the darkest days in the history of our nation. We're seeing this country fall apart before our eyes. How the former president galvanized an army. You've got a guy who's a nationalist in the most powerful seat in the world. We can actually win. We can actually get our views represented. Stand back and stand by. So Trump encouraging calls to lock Whitmer up. Lock them all up. The far-right militias have felt much more licensed to publicly engage. Terror plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And so you think the guys were planning to arrest her? It was going to be a citizen's arrest. Two militia groups were preparing to kidnap and possibly kill me. 
don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Violent mobs stoked by the words of President Trump stormed the building. They were hostile. They were venomous that their country somehow was being taken away from them. In the aftermath of the 2020 election, how these groups have become part of the American political landscape. What was the role of the Boog Boys on that day? There was some Boogaloo Boys in the crowd associated with us. They weren't there for Trump. They were there just to mess with the federal government one more time. Over the last several years, Frontline and ProPublica have been reporting on the rise of hate about what you did in Charlottesville last year. And their violence. What do you think was going on in this house? They were making bombs. Now, correspondent A.C. Thompson investigates the surge of far-right political violence. What do soldiers and Marines bring to the Boogaloo? And they bring training expertise in certain areas. They have decided this is a strategic initiative for them. There is a real, legitimate fear. We've got to be vigilant about it. I'm afraid that more innocent civilians are going to be targeted and actually victimized by these violent offenders. Everything that we had predicted has come to fruition, and it's actually worse. The first in a series of films on the rise of extremism around the world. We definitely are the modern militia. We're the ones crazy enough to actually do something. This is the news source I used to believe in. I used to put my full and complete trust in PBS and Frontline. Now that I see what they really are, what they really have become, what else can I do but mourn the loss of journalism as we once knew it? I would never have known the truth about Trump or his supporters had I not taken the time to escape my own ideological bubble and get to know them for myself. I can tell you with certainty that race is not a factor in MAGA. They have been for several years now building a working class coalition along with black and Hispanic voters. Now that Carlson has been taken off the air, they only have Trump to represent them. Moreover, they bury everything that's inconvenient to their narrative that happened in the summer of 2020. Do you think Biden even knows about Sue and her 100-year-old mattress store and the old man who went to the hospital trying to protect it? Now to the story of a man who risked his own life to save a friend's business during the violent clashes in Kenosha. He was beaten by looters, and today CBS2 investigator Megan Hickey was there when that man was reunited with the owners whose store he tried to save. This was a 100-year-old building, a family-run mattress store. For one man who risked his life defending it, it was much more than that. It's hard. (laughs) This is hard. She surveyed the damage up close for the first time today. Every inch of Sue Moniz and Keith McCarty's mattress store is destroyed. But they've had something else on their minds. Well, someone else. He's he's teeny, but he loves fiercely and is... He's just my hero. I'm sorry, sir. I'm very sorry about that, man. Armed with nothing but a fire extinguisher, 70-year-old Robert Cobb tried to defend his friend Sue's shop from a group of arsonists and looters Monday night. They just threw a bottle at this guy. The whole thing was caught on camera. We want to warn our viewers it's difficult to watch. Fresh from a double bypass surgery, Robert was standing guard until someone punched him so hard in the face. No! that he collapsed to the sidewalk. I I can't, I I can't, and I can't even think about how bad it could have been. 
I mean, it's bad enough. They broke his jaw. Robert playfully dodged our cameras most of the day because he said he wants the story to be about how much the Kenosha community loves his friend Sue. It's funny because Sue said the story is about Robert's bravery. Either way, their reunion was beautiful. Robert's jaw was broken in two places and he went in for surgery this afternoon. She's my rock, my inspiration. Even though their shop is rubble. We will rebuild. And These owners say they found a silver lining in the violence and destruction that's ravaged their community. And that break in the clouds is a lifelong friend. This is stuff. I mean, it's devastating. It was my livelihood, a lot of memories, a lot of, you know. But, but it's, it's just stuff. I can't replace that man. That man's not just stuff. Almost three days later, the building is still smoking. The owners tell me they want to rebuild in a different location, but it's too soon to know the timeline. The Danish Brotherhood next door has invited them to move with them to be their neighbors again when they rebuild. In Kenosha, Megan Hickey, CBS 2 Investigators. This isn't something you're likely to find explored in the New York Times. They have one directive, protect the administrative state at all costs. Do not speak truth to power. Do not question the official narrative. If you do, 2016 will happen all over again. The New York Times accidentally made a boo-boo by doing real journalism in reporting on Hunter Biden's neglected young daughter. It's disgraceful by any measure, even forcing Maureen Dowd to unplug from the nipple of her Trump hate to notice Joe Biden did something wrong. Here is Ben Shapiro on the media's commitment to protecting and boosting Biden's image, even at the cost of his own grandchild. Anchors on CNN, they're out there to make sure that you continue to believe that Joe Biden is a nice man. Now, there are a bunch of data points that suggest he's not so nice. One of the most obvious data points is that he has disowned a seventh grandchild through no fault of her own, because we're talking about a baby. This kid's like four years old. And Hunter Biden stripped some lady, and then that lady had a baby, and they have denied that baby the Biden name, which is the only valuable thing about being a Biden, as Hunter has found out. Hunter has made bank off the Biden name. So is, so is Frank Biden, Joe's brother. In fact, everybody remotely connected with the Biden family who can use that Biden name has traded off the family name. But Joe Biden and Hunter, they've denied this baby the ability to use the Biden name, a name so lucrative that you can travel to foreign countries like Ukraine and pick up bags of cash, sacks of cash. And then Joe Biden, when asked how many grandkids, yes, he always says six, even though there are seven, obviously. But according to the media, the real problem here is that Republicans are pouncing. It's the Republican pouncing that's the problem. Here is Dana Bash defending Joe Biden's missing seventh grandchild routine. This is this is a story that is sad and disturbing on so many levels. Um, yes, it is political for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, yes, Republicans are using it or, and are going to take advantage of it in a way that is unfortunate and inappropriate. But the reason they are doing that is because, and able to do that, is because of the brand and the kind of person that we all know and believe Joe Biden to be because it's who he says he is, and it's somebody who is a family man. That's what we see all of the time. We see, he, we know he's a family man. We know, it's, it's disturbing because we know he's such a wonderful man. And it's only these Republicans that keep being mean about the fact that he has completely disowned a seventh grandchild and pretends that that grandchild does not exist. And the talking points don't match the reality for the Democratic Party, but they're going to soldier right on through. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Okay, so The View was also out in defense of Joe Biden's missing seventh grandchild routine. So the collective IQ at The View, which maybe breaks double digits, maybe, 
They had many thoughts on why it is that Joe Biden is disowning a grandchild. President Biden doesn't need to overstep his son. I like that part, but mm-hmm. I don't know why they go out of their way to say six grandchildren or four kids. When my parents talk about me, they say, we love all our kids. We love our grandbabies. I've never seen but, them numerically repeat over and re- over. I like re- three kids. I like four of no, this. I like, re- this. Re- I like The reason that's happening is because the right wing, who again is weaponizing everything related to Hunter, keeps asking, so how many children do you have, Mr. No, it's grandchildren do you have? How many? It's well, well, speeches well, deliver. Maybe they Maureen something else to write about. Yeah, so write about something else. I mean, they I, were, I just, I, I'm sorry. You know, these things are, for me, when you start talking about people's families and what yeah. they're doing, it's, I, I find it unnecessary. This is not anybody's business. Nobody needed to know about this. No. This is private. Oh, this is, this is private, you see. If it were the Trump family, do you think Whoopi Goldberg would be saying it's private? Every day there is a big news story that the press ignores. They defend the FBI and attack FBI whistleblowers. They defend censorship and attack journalists like Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, and Barry Weiss for the Twitter files. Do you think any of them covered Jacob Siegel's hoax of the century? No chance. They all simply pretend none of it ever happened. That is who they are now. That is what they have become. And it is a tragedy some of us still can't get over. Matt Taibbi and Walter Kern on the collapse of journalism. I mean, as you know, I've been I've been covering presidential campaigns for a long time, and for the for most of that time, I was incredibly frustrated by the predictability of American presidential campaigns and the way uh, campaign reporters used to get together and you know it wasn't a formal process, but they would kind of hash out which candidates they would describe as electable. And they had code words that they used to boost certain candidates and suppress others, right? So, uh, you know, Dennis Kucinich, they always hit him with fringe and elfin, right? Um, And uh, Howard Dean was pointed and angry, but John Kerry was nuanced, uh, and broad and, you know, warm was always a descriptor that people liked, right? So the candidates who didn't have sharp edges, um, you know, who weren't, who weren't described as funny looking, um, and, and who were uh, serious was another one, right? Serious versus unserious. Oddball was a word you didn't want to see associated with your name, um, they were able to control basically a lot of the process just by dropping modifiers like that. And it was an enormous amount of power they had. It disappeared between 2008 and 2016. They went from having almost absolute power over the process to having none. I mean, I, I remember watching the beginning of the end of this process when, um, you know, Donald Trump made those remarks about, uh, uh, John McCain and how he didn't he liked people who were who didn't get, didn't captured, get captured or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they hit him with that wall of negativity and every conceivable negative um descriptor that they had and he went up in the polls. And it was the opposite of what normally happened uh in campaign journalism. And I I just feel like it's just lingering frustration from the, the ironically this is the this is how they describe 
the electorate. They, they, they claim the electorate is, is mad about its loss of influence or whatever it is. But the, the press, I think, is, is upset about that. They've lost their ability to control what, it, what goes on. And yeah, they're lonely, right? paranoid. I mean, isn't that... And they're lonely, paranoid, and given to conspiracy theories about why they're less and less popular. They are absolutely projecting onto American people the syndrome that affects them. And, uh, you know, there may be, everything has been modeled nowadays. Computers have analyzed everything and consultancies have looked into everything. And uh, <clears throat> I'm surprised that they don't know by now that mm, deploring a candidate in a certain way is the surest route to that candidate growing more popular. Trump has only uh, increased his lead against DeSantis since being indicted. Um, and I, 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 in fact, it may be that RFK is doing better against Biden than DeSantis is doing against Trump. And, 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 and not long ago, DeSantis was sort of declared to and thought to be the, the good government, super smart, Ivy League version of Trump who was just going to swamp the guy. And especially once the indictments started coming down. And the exact opposite has happened. The Christopher Ray testimony was yet another example, among many, of the too cozy relationship between the security state and the Democrats. It is then left to podcasters and outsider media to do the job the mainstream media cannot and will not. Glenn Greenwald points out just how in bed with the FBI the Democrats have become. The FBI, the CIA, Homeland Security, the NSA, and the Biden White House have indeed created a system that allows them a very effective means of censoring viewpoints and the control and, uh, and the flow of information over the Internet, which is the primary way that Americans now formulate their political ideas about the world. And they have an extremely high success rate. Because, of course, even if they frame it as a request or something they're hoping will happen, as the congressman was, was saying, when the FBI knocks on the door of Facebook or Google or Twitter, it's obviously very threatening. And these companies are acting in their commercial self-interest. Why would they want to provoke a major war with the federal government that controls enormous budgetary power, can punish them in a regulatory or legal way as they're explicitly threatening to do? And we actually now live in a world, in a society in which the U.S. government has, in fact, developed the power to censor our political speech and what it is we can and can't hear. It's not totalitarian. There's not absolute. There's still outpost of free expression. I'm obviously allowed to go on this show and say the things that I say, and there's no police coming to my door. So I don't want to overstate the case, but the trend is very much along those lines. And you don't need 100%. Sometimes having little outposts of dissent can serve to fortify that illusion that the repression isn't quite as severe as it is. And so I just think it's very important to sometimes step back and appreciate the concrete reality of, again, this is not coming from crazed conspiracy theorists who are relying on speculation. The Democratic Party has been saying that's out in the open. They summon these executive attack companies before them and they tell them, you either start censoring or we will punish you. We've seen from the Twitter files, 
the actual emails going back and forth, you can read them from this FBI agent, Elvis Chan, to Twitter, to Facebook, to Google as well. Some of those have surfaced. The plans of the Homeland Security Department to impose a systemic means of controlling the flow of information on the grounds that they're combating disinformation. And as we know so well, so often, the people who claim to be combating disinformation are the people who, in fact, are disseminating it. Twitter stands alone. The chokehold on information is evident in the two top sites for news and views. The New York Times and Google, both are essentially working for the Democrats. For podcast listeners, a chart with the New York Times at the top with over 400 million views per month. Google and YouTube are the same company. Facebook, Instagram, and Threads are the same company. The censorship done by the FBI at the behest of Democrats funneled through all of these monopolies. For podcast listeners, another chart showing the most viewed websites, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at number five. Twitter is now like the wild, wild west. It's what the internet used to be when I first got online in 1994. Fertile new soil to experiment with freedom of ideas. Elon Musk stands alone as the one person willing to take it on the chin for free speech. There is no more exciting place to be online than Twitter. You just have to be willing to trust yourself and your own mind. The heroes in history will not be those who complied with the requests to censor ordinary Americans, or the journalists who repeatedly ignored and did not chase the story again and again and again. Instead, the heroes will be those who went up against the machine and forged a new direction on the other side of paradise. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. I'm going to put back in my quote at the end of this podcast because it was explained to me in a very nice way by a reader and it made sense. So remember, to thine own self, be true. Hope you have a wonderful weekend.